Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Sports Forum podcast. I am Ken Reed, and I am your host. At Sports Forum, we try to take a fairly deep dive on a variety of sports issues. I'm also sports policy director for League of Fans, a sports reform project founded by Ralph Nader. Our mission at League of Fans is to fight for the principles of justice, fair play, equal opportunity, civil rights, safety, and civic responsibility in the world of sports. Sports Forum is an ongoing discussion on a variety of topics, many of them public policy related. For the most part, we'll be talking about issues beyond the games themselves. Our guests will come from all over the country and sometimes beyond and have a variety of sports related backgrounds. So with that, let's get this episode started. We're lucky today to have Craig Calcaterra as our guest. Craig is the author of a brand new book called Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. He's also the writer and editor of the daily baseball news and culture newsletter called Cup of Coffee, which I highly recommend. Check it out online. Previously, he was the lead national baseball writer for NBC Sports, where he launched and edited the baseball blog, Hardball Talk. He lives in New Albany, Ohio. Welcome, Craig. Thank you for having me, uh, Ken. Well, we start off with our guests with having them tell us a little bit how they got interested in sports way back when you were a kid sometime, I imagine. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I just as, as early as I can remember it. Um, I, I'm not one of those people uh, whose, whose parents really got them into sports because my parents weren't sports fans, but I have an older brother who collected baseball cards and got me into that. And I lived in the Detroit area at the time and you could listen to, to Ernie Harwell and uh, watch uh, the Tigers on WJR or listen to the Tigers on WJR, watch them on Channel 4. Uh, so it just was all around me and I just fell in love with baseball and eventually it extended to a bunch of other sports too. Cool. Ernie Harwell is one of the best ever, isn't he? Oh, I was so lucky. I was so lucky, uh, you know, in the late 70s to have him as the the go-to announcer there. And I didn't know any better. And I didn't realize until many years later how spoiled I was. Yeah. When you travel around the country and listen to various announcers, you know when you have a good one or not. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and a bad one, unfortunately, yeah, sometimes. Right, right. So how did you become a sports writer, primarily a baseball writer? Uh, it's, you know, I never lost the sports fandom. But uh, I, in my career, I, I went to law school, became a lawyer. Uh, I was doing that. I was a litigator for 11 years. And uh, as a lot of litigators will tell you, there's a pretty high burnout factor in that world. Uh, in my last couple of years uh, as a lawyer, I was getting a little disillusioned with it. And I wanted to find something to do that was a little more uplifting in my life. So on the side, just as a hobby, I, I started writing about baseball because I was just you know, always fascinated with it. And I started a little blog in 2006, 2007, and uh, somehow it got popular. I, you know, there are a number of reasons, a lot of it being luck that people started to read it. And after about two years, uh, NBC was reimagining its sports coverage on their website. And they just reached out to me and said, hey, we like what you do. Would you like to come work for us? It was, again, lightning striking. And uh, you didn't have to ask me to leave the law twice. And 12 <laughs> years later now, or almost 13 years later now, I'm still doing it. So you started with a corporate giant in NBC, and now you're independent, right, with your newsletter? Or? 
I am. It's it's all me. Um, I, I was at NBC for 11 years and, uh, you know, in late 2020 has happened to almost any kind of business. Uh, the pandemic took its toll. NBC decided to cut back. And uh, it's one of those things where on day one, you think, oh, no, this is terrible. My dream job is gone. And then on day two, you say, hey, I can do this myself. And I just launched a newsletter and uh, a lot of my readers followed me over. And it's been a great experience. And uh, I wish I'd have done it many years before because now I don't answer to anybody and I write about whatever I want. And it's, it's just so fun. It's, I pinch myself that I get to do this for a living. That's cool. And, and you put more culture kind of offbeat topics into your newsletter than you used to, right? Uh, very much so. Now, NBC, I, I will admit, they, they gave me so much leash, uh, more so than I think any sports writer working for a major media company gets. They let me write about almost anything I wanted, at least within some amount of reason. And part of the appeal over there was I was able to use my own voice rather than a reporter's voice and uh, touch on other topics. But since I've started my newsletter, I, I devote a full third and, and some days maybe more than a third to writing about whatever catches my interest, whether it's a political issue, a movie that I just saw. Sometimes I talk about my kids. A lot of my readers want to hear about my teenagers. Um, so baseball and life. And uh, that kind of flows into everything that I think about sports these days is uh, sports is just one part of your life. It's not the only part of life. And I, I put it all out there and it's fun to write about it all. So as I mentioned at the start, your new book is called Rethinking Fandom. So why did you decide that a book on fandom was needed today? You know, I didn't think it that way, really. Um, and, and it was funny. I, I'd had this idea. I've had these obsessions about fandom that I come back to over and over again in my writing over the years, but I never thought it would be a book. Um, and I, I didn't think that I ever had anything to say that was worth, oh, someone must hear what I have to say about this topic. <laughs> uh, but I think I'd written about some topic in fandom three or four times in a row or over the course of a couple of weeks. And uh, the editor of uh, uh, the publisher of Belt Publishing, who, who is a reader of mine, she reached out to me and she said, you know, you have these topics that are important to you. If they're important to you, someone else is going to be interested in them. And didn't really occur to me that way, but I started to put it down together and I said, yeah, I think this could be a book. So I think it was just the other way around. It interested me enough and I wanted to get these things out of my head and I hoped that it would would find an audience. But uh, I, I do think that the the nature of sports, the nature of sports business now, the way we consume sports, the, the many different ways we have available to consume sports now, uh, and the many ways that uh, sports has of taking money out of our pockets, uh, does sort of call for a, a, a bit of a critical look at how sports fandom works and maybe thinking about how we approach sports and how we interact with it. Yeah, we'll get into it in a little later, but uh, you do offer some hope for fans to have some power uh, in this world where most fans feel powerless because, you know, there's one team in town that's always been my team and they do whatever they want to me and I'm kind of stuck. Yeah. And, and I, I don't presume just to, to be really clear, I, I don't presume to think that we as fans can, can bend sports to our will or the, the teams or the leagues or the networks or whatever who are in charge of sports. I, I don't think we can necessarily change them. I'm not such an optimist that I believe in, in that power, but we can certainly take their power away from how they uh, control or, or influence our lives. And we could, we can recenter sports in our, in our day-to-day -day, uh, existence and, and how it affects us psychologically in such a way that, uh, that, that sports doesn't have that sort of power over us. It doesn't give us a situation where we're unhappy or we're dissatisfied with, with, our, uh, with our team or, or with the sport we love and feel like we have no choice. 
Good point. I like your subtitle, but it's kind of intriguing as well in terms of what exactly you're getting after. Your subtitle is how to beat the sports industrial complex, complex at its own game. So how, how do you define the sports industrial complex and what game are they playing exactly? <laughs> well, I sort of jokingly picked that, that name for it, just you know, riffing on the old Eisenhower thing about the military industrial complex. Mm -hmm. Um, but I thought, and I, it was sort of a placeholder for a while because I kept writing sports leagues and teams and networks and government and everything. And that's just very unwieldy. So I wanted a shorthand for it. And uh, that was a joking shorthand. But then it sort of hit me that it, it was apt in that all of the, the sort of business and, and governmental interests that sort of uh, have some sort of say in how sports work. Um, and, and I don't mean the government necessarily, but the way sports teams and leagues and, and wealthy owners and things interact with government and get favors from them and everything. Uh, it, it does sort of work like the military industrial complex in the sense that the tail kind of wags the dog. Um, what Eisenhower was getting at, obviously, was, uh, you know, if you create this big enough complex with enough money and enough power and uh, enough ideology to it, it's going to assert its will whether we want it to or not. If you build a big enough army, eventually that army is going to find a war to fight because that's what armies do. With sports, if it becomes a big enough business, the business side of things is going to come to dictate everything. Uh, and the sports part of it might not be what really drives the train. Uh, that's my biggest takeaway, I think, and my biggest observation about sports today. Uh, the games themselves are almost the MacGuffin of the entire enterprise, as, as Hitchcock would say. It's just the excuse for something else. And in some ways, it's the excuse for uh, hedge fund owners or uh, real estate magnates to make a lot more money with sports that just so happens to be a booming market. Uh, and, and the idea that someone cares about sports and that this is something that's important to fans on an emotional level, to cities on a sort of a civic pride level, that's gotten lost in a lot of ways. That's how you and I and people who are a little older remember uh, growing up with sports as, as the whole point. And it seems to not be the whole point anymore. Yeah, that's that's so true, especially when you look at all the new stadiums and arenas that are apparently built more to be real estate deals than they are for fans of the team oh huge huge factor right now i mean there's the atlanta braves did not need a new stadium but they certainly wanted to build a 300 acre or more might be bigger than that real estate development in which they had huge financial interests in which the team and and the condos and the restaurants and the businesses and the offices uh could sort of you know cross pollinate each other and make somebody a lot of money that was what really drove that not really the baseball same with the Texas Rangers and the LA Rams and Stan Kroenke, what he did out there. A lot oh, yeah. of, a lot of examples of that. Um, I think one of your foundational premises in the book is that owners and executives of pro sports franchises regularly exploit the often blind loyalty of their fan base. And we've kind of touched briefly on a couple, but could you give a few more examples of how they take advantage of blind loyalty of the fans? Well, there's, there's certainly a sense out there, and you're seeing it more now than I think you ever have, particularly in the sport that I pay the closest attention to, baseball, where there is this presumption that no matter what they do, we will root for the team. Uh, a great example happened uh, in, in mid-April. It was the opening weekend, I think it was opening day in Cincinnati, where the team president, Paul Castellini, uh, was being interviewed uh, and the Cincinnati by the Cincinnati Reds and the Cincinnati Reds um, had a very uh, 
not great offseason as far as Reds fans are concerned. They got rid of a lot of their stars. They didn't spend any money on free agents. Uh, they were starting the season miserably. Uh, and the interviewer asked him, uh, you know, what do you say to fans who think that this is not the direction the team's going? And the and Castellini, the team president, said, where are they going to go? That's, yeah. th- that was exactly what he said. And it was one of those instances where he then tried to walk it back a little bit. But uh, it was clearly the case that he believes, and I think a lot of sports owners believe, that fans will be there no matter what, no matter if we try to win, no matter if we uh, make the game-going experience fun or family-friendly. There's this idea out there now that uh, fans will always be there, the money will always come in. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the reason they can get away with it is because we have a, a very emotional connection to sports. And also uh, the government has helped that in, in the case of baseball with their antitrust exemption. And the, it's basically, they've allowed these pro sports leagues that operate as government sanctioned cartels. And so what that guy said had a lot of truth to it, unless you give yeah. up, give up pro sports fandom and, and just want to watch the local high school team or something, which there's nothing wrong with that either. Well, it's interesting. In some ways, we do have more choice than we've ever had um, because of technology. Um, I'm in central Ohio. Uh, I can watch. I don't have to just watch the Cincinnati Reds or the Cleveland Guardians because of uh, MLB streaming service or because of various cable packages. I could watch 162 Los Angeles Dodgers games if I want to. I could watch the Seattle Mariners. I could watch the Tigers. people tend to not do that because of sports loyalty, because of the way we sort of interact with sports, but we can in ways now that we never could have before. Exactly. But I think, and you touch on this in parts of your book, it's not just rooting for the local team. It's the community that develops when you go to a game or you're in the office on coffee break and everyone's talking about the local team. So even if you're fed up with the management of the team and you'd rather watch the Dodgers on, on pay TV, you, it's harder to find that community when it's a team that's not in your geographic region. That is absolutely true. And that is part of the way that, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but that's how they got us. Right. Um, right. That's one of the good things about sports actually. Um, yeah. I, I get this sense from some people because of, you know, I'm, I do both in my writing and my newsletter and in the book, I, I talk a lot about how the conventional view of sports is one that I'd like to get away from. And so people say, well, why do you hate sports? Or why, why are you writing about baseball if you don't seem to like anything that happens? And I, I think there are wonderful things about sports. I think that uh, that sense of community you're talking about is a huge one. We live in a world now that is so very fragmented and, and we don't come together in social spaces the way we might have in, in the past. Uh, there's this sense that money can buy your way out of society in ways with whether it's VIP this or that or or just not having to come together with your fellow humans. Um, sports is one of the few things we have left where everybody comes together over the same thing, more or less, in a community. No matter what's going on, I can talk to somebody on the corner where I live in Columbus, Ohio, about the Ohio State Buckeyes or about uh, you know, the Cleveland Guardians or something. Um, I think, though, that we can get around that a little bit if we want to. Um, there are other ways to form community over sports. I personally, I, I've done it over the internet a lot. I have very close friendships and deep friendships with people that I've forged over the internet over the last 15 years or so as being a writer um, that a lot of people do. There are communities of, of fans 
that are far flung now. Um, I, at the end of the book, I talk about how I've become a soccer fan. It's it's English soccer for the most part, Premier League soccer. Uh, mm. I've made a number of close friends, at least to the extent you can call someone close friend that you have yet to meet in person, uh, who live in you know Hounslow, London, England. I mean, it's <laughs> it's one of those things that uh, we can find community in different ways if we try. That's true. And all the teams have their fan chat rooms, it seems like, these days. Yes. Yeah. The, the online experience of being a sports fan, while it has some heavy, heavy pitfalls to it and some big dangers that we have to watch out for, can also be a very rewarding experience as well. Well, there haven't been many, if any, sociological studies about why fans are fans of particular teams. As you write in the book, uh, fans don't do cost-benefit analyses on being sports fans versus following other potential pursuits. Uh, fans don't put a lot of thought into why they're sports fans today, do they? No, I, I don't think so. I, I would say the vast majority of us sort of uh, inherited sports fandom from our families, for example, um, or from our, our classmates or later in life, if we go to college somewhere. I mean, how many people do you know that became Boston Red Sox fans because they went to school in Boston? I mean, there's a lot of those folks. Right. Um, I, I think we tend to stumble into it more than we don't, um, historically anyway. Um, I, I do think that there are more instances available to us now where we do maybe make a conscious choice. I, I mentioned soccer a few minutes ago. I, I did make a conscious choice after 48 years of life of never being a soccer fan. I decided last summer that I was going to get into it. And when you're an American and you don't have an English soccer team in your in your community, you can pick anyone you want. That's the mm -hmm. beauty of it. Um, we do have some instances like that. And uh, there are people who maybe didn't grow up with sports who uh, not for local reasons, just decide they're going to follow a team or they're going to get into a sport. We also see this with individual sports. Uh, when the Olympics comes along, there's there's always this uptick in interest in whether it's curling or whether it's gymnastics or figure skating or something. We do sometimes make conscious choices, but not always. And there is certainly an emotional uh, component to it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that uh, today people can have more choices because there's more ways to consume sports than there used to be yeah and that goes from watching the games versus various platforms that could go towards uh being a fan in a different way fantasy sports i i have a chapter in the book called meta fandom that refers to meta fandom which is a overly pretentious word for just the stuff around sports mm -hmm. uh people who are into fantasy sports people who are into collecting uh things that are you know memorabilia or things that are around sports uh there are different sort of card games and uh and offshoots board games tabletop games that are related to sports that you still have this connection to it because it might use the statistics for example or it might use uh, names and logos and things um but there are all manner of ways that we can consume sports now uh or get in I guess consume is the wrong word. I just caught myself using that. I don't want to say confuse, consume sports. I want to say enjoy right. it. I All want right. to say use it and, and sort of experience sports and the world around it uh, in very different ways. Well, I, I have a couple of friends that are just fed up with the state of pro sports today and this last labor uh, conflict in Major League Baseball was the last straw for one of them. And so now he, he just reads and reviews box scores from the 60s or 70s and watches old videos of games from that era when it was more pure, at least in his mind. 
Oh, and that's a, a wonderful way. I mean, part of what got me into sports in the first place when I was a very little boy was baseball cards. And those were often at the time because they weren't really super expensive like they became later. I had access to a bunch of cards from the 50s and the 60s and uh, reading the old baseball encyclopedia, which was published in 1969. That was before I was born, but it had the stats from guys 50, 70, 100 years before. Um, and I had computer simulation games on very bad Commodore 64 computers in the 80s <laughs> that you could play the 1927 Yankees against the 1912 Red Sox and, right. and play that game. It's, it's a wonderful way to consume it. And, and of course, now if oh, you, you go into consume YouTube, again. Yeah, I, I keep saying that. That's crazy. <laughs> Maybe I'm hungry. That's probably why. But uh, the uh, you know you can go on YouTube and you could watch uh, a random game from 1987 if you want mm -hmm. to. And it's wonderful. Yeah. And they're a lot faster. <laughs> oh my gosh, they work a lot faster. The pitchers get the ball, they they pitch it, the batter doesn't step out of the box and adjusts his batting gloves 50 times, and the games last about two hours and 12 minutes instead of three hours and 47 minutes. All right. Uh, well, I don't want to get too deep into this topic because politics is pretty dividing, but it's interesting that you bring up the idea that sports fans of particular teams act similarly to supporters of political parties in terms of defending their team, just like the red and blue teams do in politics and 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 there's nothing that your team can do that's wrong etc yeah exactly and that's it doesn't have to get divisive because it's not a partisan thing of oh the blue folks are good or the red folks are bad or vice versa it's it's the the mode in which we interact with it um i think in some ways sports and politics have, have sort of switched in that there was a time, at least ideally, maybe it didn't really ever exist, but there was a time, at least theoretically, when in politics you found a set of goods that that or, or positions that matched your values, and then you you sort of followed along logically with where those values went. And then in sports, it was always this passion. Uh, in, in some ways now, politics has become a sport where no matter who it is or what they stand for, as long as they're wearing our jersey or our colors, uh, I will support them. And in sports, we have this thing of, uh, no, the Boston Red Sox are the side of righteousness and reason, and the New York Yankees are madness. Uh, that's ridiculous, of course, because it's a game. But uh, the I, I wrote about this once a few years ago when I was at NBC. And as I was trying to do this analogy between sports fandom and, and, and political support, I was just randomly looking through photos in the AP and Getty photo archives. And I found there's, a, there's an Ohio State super fan named Buckeye Guy who wears eye black under his eyes and a big cowboy hat with fringe that has the Ohio State logos on it. And he can be seen in all the broadcasts. And then I looked at a photo from the 2016 Republican National Convention. And there was a woman who was a Trump supporter who was also wearing a cowboy hat with fringe that had a Donald Trump photo on the front. And she had little eye black under her eyes for reasons that I can't tell. It was almost <laughs> identical. And I said, which is the sports fan? which is the political supporter it was hilarious to me well yeah and uh the last republican convention i guess i didn't even bother putting a platform together because don't have to we have a banner to wave right. you're on the, the team we've disposed with it i mean the, the new york yankees don't come out every year and say what we stand for you just root for the yankees mm -hmm. well one of the things that really really frustrates both me and the league of fans founder which is or who is ralph nader and Nader's a New York Yankees fan, but and he's a diehard radio listener. He, you know, like some of us who are baseball fans, would rather listen on the radio than on TV. You can multitask, things like that. You mentioned growing up with Ernie Harwell. 
Vin Scully, some of these guys become like part of the family because you hear them so much and they tell stories and personal stories and, and things like that. But it's so frustrating. And I think the Yankees are the worst example. But if you listen to a radio broadcast, everything that happens has an ad attached to it. Now, these in-game ads, the, the call to the bullpen is brought to you by Company X. This pinch hitting appearance is brought to you by Company Y. The fifth inning is brought to you by, you know, another company and it's, it's ongoing. And then instead of it being a relaxing, enjoyable thing, like you talked about how sports could be, it just drives you nuts because it's just one ad after another. And oh, yeah, I, I absolutely noticed that I, I'm a, a radio. I prefer baseball on the radio to, to baseball and TV for the most part, um, for all the reasons you said. Uh, and being a, a, a sort of a national baseball writer this last you know 13 years or so, I, I do make a point to listen to various teams because I want to see what's going on with a lot of teams. And the Yankees by far have uh, monetized on a granular level the game listening experience. And I think the examples you gave are, are pretty pedestrian for what some of the Yankees do. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. this two strike pinch, this two strike check swing is brought to you by you know bail bonds company or something. Yeah. Um, I just picture the broadcasters going nuts, more nuts than we are, because they got to read these stupid things all the time. It, it is interesting. I, I did a little bit when I was at NBC. I did a little bit of TV and a little bit of radio for them for their for their outlets. Not a lot. Uh, I have a face for writing on the internet, not for TV. Um, but the the skill that is far more valuable for a for a talking head is to be able to seamlessly integrate those sorts of ads and all that sorts of stuff going on while looking at the right camera or saying the right thing. So there is a talent to it, even though it's one that doesn't really uh, do much for you and any, you and me or or for Mr. Nader. But um, I I find it frustrating. I agree. I I understand the idea of baseball has three outs in an inning. And you can't get to that ad until there have been three outs and baseball goes slower now. And we're always, this whole society is aiming at trying to monetize every moment of the day. Um, and then on TV, I get it because major league baseball is trying to its credit. It's not succeeding yet, but it is trying to shorten games. And one of the, the big drivers for how long games are in inning uh, in between inning commercial breaks. Mm -hmm. And so they're starting now even on TV to integrate ads in the middle, because if they can cut 30 seconds off the break, maybe we can make up for it by some ads in the game going experience. It takes a lot of uh, being able to tune it out and only listen to the good parts. And I don't think most people have that skill. So yeah, it's a, it's a really frustrating thing. Yeah, we, we, uh, at League of Fans, we, we actually recorded an entire game and transcribed it and put all the various in-game ads and sent it to the Yankees VPs, various VPs. We sent it to the media and, and we got a little coverage on it, but it's, it seems like it's one of those things where people just say, well, that's the way it is. There's nothing I can do about it. Do you think there's any pushback other than just not listening to, to stop it or at least moderate it a little? I, I am not a cynic and I don't believe uh, in lost cause and anything's a real lost cause, but with this, I kind of do. I, <laughs> I just don't think there's any going back. Uh, once you start monetizing everything, uh, there's no unmonetizing it. We are past the age in this country where things were going to become public goods or uh, nonprofit enterprises, unfortunately, if they weren't before. Um, so yeah, we're, we're kind of stuck with it. Yeah. I guess we're not going to have any more green Bay Packers where the, uh, 
the fans are the shareholders actually <laughs> you have a, you have a couple of them but they're they're certainly not uh, shareholders that have a strong say in the management of the enterprise right uh i would i got the feeling at a couple spots in the book that some people who are sports fans might say this guy's calling me stupid because i'm, <laughs> I'm a blind loyalist to this team uh just because i like this team why why is he calling me stupid not literally of course but how do, how do you respond to that? Have you gotten any of that criticism? Uh, a little bit. I did get a little bit of that. And I, I do take issue with it. I, I don't think for a moment that anyone who has got blind loyalty to a team is is the one to be criticized. It's it's understandable. If anything, you have you have made yourself vulnerable. You have taken a leap of faith to to put your happiness in the hands of nine baseball players or 11 football players or five basketball players on a nightly basis uh, to, to, to entertain you. Um, it's commendable. And I, I want people to have loyalty. I want people to have passion for sports. All I'm trying to do is say, hey, that's great. But sometimes if you're not having fun or if it's destructive for you or if you're not enjoying yourself, maybe think a little bit differently about how you approach it. I think it's no different than if a loved one came up to you and said, you know what? I know you're having fun with that hobby you have, but you're getting too far into it. Maybe take a step back and you'd enjoy it a little bit more. That's all I'm trying to say. Okay. Well, you talk about finding ways to be sports fan on your own terms. Uh, that's an interesting concept that uh, this approach would allow people to kind of personalize the way they they become they're a fan now instead of just the sports industrial complex defining how they should be as a fan and, and we've touched on a couple of those examples now you can play fantasy sports which i think really took off because people enjoyed being their own team owner quote unquote mm -hmm. and their own general manager and i can pick my own players i'm not stuck with that stupid gm's players <laughs> I, I tell people that when when we were little kids, you used to say that when I grow up, I want to be the center fielder for the local baseball team. And now people say, when I grow up, I want to be the general manager. Mm -hmm. So talk about a few other ways that, uh, that you can personalize it and be, you know, be a fan on your own terms. We've touched on some of them, but you got some more. I think the biggest one is to sort of take a step back from the non-game experience. Um, it used to be that people would tune into a game on the radio or on TV, the game would play, the game would end, you'd walk away until the next game started. Because the way networks run and talk radio runs and everything, it's now a 24-7 experience. And we find ourselves increasingly getting immersed in, in the chatter and the rumors and the, and the analysis and everything. And I think it's very possible to personalize your experience, to take a step back, to enjoy the games, watch the games, and then get away from them. And I think we enjoy the games more if you take that little break. I did that when I was a very obsessive Ohio State football fan. It's a it's a year-round experience here in Columbus, Ohio. People are talking about it all day and all year long. And I, I decided one year I was going to take a step back. I would watch the games. I would stay away from the talk shows. I would stay away from the, the, the long columns in the newspaper because you just get too wound up in it and you lose perspective. I think that's the best way to have a healthy experience with sports and interaction with sports is to just enjoy the games and put primacy back on the games themselves and the athletes themselves. Yeah. And you don't, you talk about, you don't necessarily even have to have a one particular team. I think when you started watching European soccer, you watched a bunch of them and you could do the same thing in the United States. Why not watch games of various teams and maybe you just cheer for certain players on certain teams or, or you just 
redefine how you're going to be a fan. Yeah, there's a there's a whole chapter in the book called Be a Fairweather Fan. And uh, I know that's something that's considered horrible. It's the worst sin a fan could have is not having loyalty. But it's so enjoyable to if you're a Red Sox fan and you love watching Mookie Betts and he went and joined the Dodgers, it doesn't mean you have to become a Dodgers fan, but you could still watch Mookie Betts. You can still enjoy him to play. You didn't just enjoy him because he was helping the Red Sox win. I'm guessing. That's my guess. I think you enjoyed watching the way he ran, the way he catched, the way he hit. And uh, you can still do that with various players. You can tune in a Los Angeles Angels game just to watch Shohei Otani, even if you don't care about the Los Angeles Angels. Um, appreciating the athletes for what they are. And uh, if your team is in the doldrums for a couple of years, say, you know what, I'll get back to you. There's this really exciting team I've never thought about. Uh, I'm an Indiana Pacers fan, but they're not doing so well. I'm going to go watch the Warriors. And yeah, maybe I'm on a bandwagon because they're very good, but they're really fun and entertaining. Nothing right. wrong with that. Right. I agree. You have a chapter called Support Activism, which will likely make some sports fans mad, and in particular, those that agree with Fox News' Laura Ingram, who said of LeBron James, shut up and dribble, when James was speaking out on social, social justice issues. What do you think of, of fans, you hear it all the time, that they get into sports to get away from the real world, and they just want their athletes to focus on sports, and they want them working out year round to get better at sports and not to talk about anything besides sports. Say that fan is an accountant. How would they think if someone walked up to them and said, I don't want to hear anything from you except accounting. And if you start talking about what you read today or what you're thinking about the world, I find it illegitimate. We would never do that to a person. I think it's crazy that we do that with sports. And I think that we need to appreciate that sports do not actually exist in a vacuum. As I laid out in the book and as we've talked about, there's an interaction between sports and us. There's an interaction between sports and the government. There's an interaction between sports and our children and our communities to suggest that the people who are the key actors in that activity have no say or should have no say about what's going on in the world around them, I find that to be ridiculous. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to engage it. But to tell someone that they can't have an opinion on something because they're an athlete and all we value them for is their ability to dribble or to hit or to throw, I find that to be a completely illegitimate position. I agree with you on that. I think we just had a recent example here with the Texas school shooting of the elementary kids. And I've never seen a coach or player be as impassioned as Steve Kerr was when his, with, with his comments on that. They live in the same world we do. And that day, he and the Warriors had to go out and play a game. And they had the events of the world, the horrible events from Texas on their minds, too. And to think that they don't have their life impacted by that, just like we do, is, uh, is silly. And, and I love to hear that. And I want to hear how they engage in the same world I do. So in your epilogue, you talk about how you gradually became a soccer fan and you've touched on that a little, but are you still really a soccer fan? A lifelong baseball I, fan? Is I a- am. The, the Premier League, well, the baseball will always be the number one thing in my heart. But uh, uh, soccer was interesting to me because I wanted to have a sport that I could watch that I, I wasn't obsessed with and I didn't have a whole lifetime of, of baggage with. Um, and it started in August is when the Premier League season and I wrote this epilogue, I think probably in September, or early October. Uh, the season just ended as we're talking now. The season just ended a week ago. I stuck with it all year by the end of the year i did pick a favorite team it was brentford the newly promoted team to the premier league uh they're a london team and i really got into it and i can't wait for the season to start again in august awesome awesome i'm kind of doing something similar i've never been a hockey fan but 
the NBA playoffs have been kind of a bore this year with all kinds of blowouts. And uh, I started watching some of the hockey games that were down to the last second. And it's, it's kind of like soccer on speed. There's a lot, it more, is. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot my, more action. So I, I can kind of get into hockey a little. Yeah. My brother is a huge hockey fan for reasons. I just never picked it up like he did, but uh, I take him to games sometimes. And uh, in person, it's a really kinetic and really visceral sport. Uh, you're right. The speed of it is, it doesn't really come across on TV even as much as it does in person. So I I'm all for picking up a sport you've never watched before and trying to get into it a little bit. It's a lot of fun and it actually tells you a little bit about yourself and about the sports you already love. Well, Craig, I've enjoyed it. This has been a fun chat. Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game is Craig's new book. And as they say, it's available wherever books are sold. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Craig. Thank you for listening to this episode of League of Fans Sports Forum Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. You can follow Sports Forum and get information about episodes on Facebook at Sports Forum Podcast. And be sure to go to LeagueOfFans.org to find our latest work on contemporary sports issues. Remember, anyone can be a sports change agent. If you see something in the world of sports that could be better than it is, get involved. Whether that means with the local youth league or at the national level with a major sports public policy issue, you can make a difference. Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, once said, the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. So the next time you see an opportunity to enhance the positives or mitigate the negatives in sports world, go ahead and get a little crazy. Until next time, take care.